Thank you, ladies, all God's people said. The seminary class I wish they would have taught is how to preach with a cough drop in your cheek. They didn't teach that one. There's a couple others I wish they had taught, but that is certainly one. Uh, pro- apologize, I, I'm going to try to do this. <clears throat> I'm still having little issues. We're going to be looking at Mark chapter 10, verses 35 through 45, a leader that empowers people. In Mark 10, we find the disciples learning a lesson. And unfortunately, they learn it the hard way. They don't listen to Jesus, and, and then they start asking for things they really shouldn't be asking for. James and John approach Jesus with what they thought was a simple request. They wanted to know if Jesus would allow them to sit by his side, one on the left and one on the right, when they got to heaven. Uh, unfortunately, their request revealed a selfishness and a personal ambition that is not godly. Certainly shouldn't have been among the disciples. To be rulers in Jesus' kingdom, his new kingdom, required a new way of thinking. That's the, way they, that's the way the Jews thought, but that's not the way Jesus wanted them to think going forward. It, it was not a direct rebuke to them, but it was a backhanded rebuke nonetheless. He did explain that they did not understand what they were asking. You don't know what you're asking for. And he pointed out that those that would be sitting in those seats, would be sitting there because they would suffer the same treatment that Jesus suffered. And were they really willing to do that? Hearing their request, uh, the other disciples got angry, and I think rightfully so, you know, trying to uh, manipulate Jesus to do something that really is his choice by asking first. But Jesus intervened, and in the great way that he does, he explained his kingdom comes through service and not through position. Jesus' kingdom, in it, the way we work, comes through service and not through position. So let's read uh, the quest of James and John in Matthew chapter 10, verses 35 and following. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? Don't you like those open-ended questions when your kids would come, you know, know, give me whatever I want. What exactly is it you want? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit on your right and the other on the left of your glory. You don't know what you're asking, said Jesus. Can you drink the cup? I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can. They answered him. Jesus said, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit on my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the turn, when the ten rather heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. 
And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Would you pray with me? Father, we come and open your word and we read it. And we with the disciples sometimes don't understand. We really don't get it. But thank you for explaining it to them and explaining it to us. Open our hearts and remove the selfishness that is there and make us to be servants and slaves of all because that's what you came to do, to serve, not to be served. Help us to see that and want to act that way, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. There is an expression that has become common I wouldn't say necessarily popular, but common among church teachers in seminaries and and conferences and things, and that's servant leadership. The idea that to be a leader, you must be a servant. Uh, You have to serve. Servant leadership is when a leader humbles himself or herself to be on the same level to those who are served. In the eyes of the Lord, we're all equal. And for one to rise above another and say that they're better or more righteous or no more is ungodly. There's just no way around it. What we are to see is that servant leadership can work in a couple of ways. First of all, I want to give you a quote by Dwight L. Moody, uh, minister and evangelist of the past. The measure of a man is not how many servants he has, but how many men he serves. I think this focus tonight is really on servant leadership that empowers people, you and me. God does this. Leaders operate on level of ones that are to be served and also ones that can be served. They're, They're leaders because they're willing to be servants to begin with. That's what Jesus' kingdom says. Walter C. Jackson, professor at Campbellsville University, says, Servant leadership, as portrayed in the Gospels, is difficult to maintain in a climate where increasingly larger segments of the Christian population refer to super-leader styles or agro-leader styles, aggressive-leader styles. What this means is that to many of us, this concept of servant leadership is virtually unknown because it's set in an environment that is more corporate than it is church cooperative. It's more corporate. We're looking at people, when we talk about things like budgets, baptisms, and and buildings, like how, how, what's your budget for this year? How many people did you baptize? How many building projects are you involved in? And those who receive the accolades in Christianity are those at the super mega churches who do gigantic things, draw numbers of people, and if you aren't in that, you're ignored or looked down upon. It's that to which... These have spoken in the quotes earlier, uh, Dwight L. Moody and Jackson. And we need to look at why Jesus says that's not to be true in my kingdom. I think first we're going to look at 
what the wrong attitude is for servant leadership. And then we'll look at three points that divine what servant leadership is. And then I want to give you some quotes from some different people about how Jesus led and talk about those and maybe give you enough background and context of how Jesus did leadership to give you some tools to know what a good servant leader should be. I mean, I, I, uh, uh, you could go through the entire Bible. You could go to Moses and his father-in-law to see how leaders should react. You know, you remember Moses going through a situation, and as he goes through the situation, his father-in-law says, you know, why don't you spread some of this out and try and make all decisions yourself? I mean, there's, uh, there, there's one thing of trying to deal with things, but there's others that it, some things are beyond our skill set and we need help with. And so you can look throughout the Bible and find people in leadership styles and models. And so we want to look at that, and I think as we look at the wrong atti- attitude for leadership, we, we remember these verses that we've read, 35 and following, and we see what we should not do. Look at verses 37 and 38 with me again, verses 37, 38. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? And then they said, we can, they replied. We look at those verses and James and John asked Jesus if they could be on either side. You heard that. Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. And he basically told them, I'm not the one that decides who sits on the right and the left. I do like the fact that Jesus warned them they would drink from the cup and they would be baptized. They didn't know what that meant yet, but they would discover what it meant. You can go on our website and you can look up Fox's Books of Martyrs and read through that of Christians who over the years uh, have given themselves as martyrs because they were willing to drink from the cup and be baptized with that baptism. Verse 38 Jesus asked James if they're able to drink from that cup. A cup is a metaphor, uh, you know, for suffering. Uh, You look in chapters, uh, in Isaiah, in chapter 51, and baptism is used as a metaphor for being plunged into a calamity. You look at Psalms, in Psalms 42 and 69, and Jesus' death on the cross was told and talked about as the ultimate act of, of servanthood for a group of people that needed him. He had to do that for them. That's a servant. I do something for you you cannot do for yourself. So Jesus did a service that mankind could never repay. They couldn't ever live up to what Jesus did on the cross. When Jesus asked the questions of James and John, I think he was demonstrating to them that Greatness is achieved through service. Underscore that. Greatness is achieved through service. You know, as I went through uh, university and uh, seminary, in two different seminaries, um, there was an assumption in most of the people who I dealt with that you would be going to a big church. No one ever said, I want to go to a church that runs under 50 and is in a country place and does this or that. You know, they wanted a county seat town. They wanted, you know, uh, a Walmart and a Target and the hospital nearby and everything. Nobody looked for the small setting. Now, some people wanted to go on mission field. You know, maybe you can count that. I don't know. But 
it was assumed you, you were going to move in that direction. I think that's changed over the years. I've watched it. But I do think that was the assumption by most people if you ask them where they thought they would be in five or ten years. When Jesus asked the question, he was expecting, I think, them to say no. I mean, he knew what they were going to say. But the way the question was asked, it should have been no. You don't want to drink from this cup I'm drinking from. That's what he was doing. But they said we can. No one can save the world from its sins, only Jesus. I think it's a fairly cocky answer from them to assume that they could do what Jesus could do. I mean, they had seen what he had done. How could they assume they could do what he could do? Drink from the cup he could drink from, be baptized with the baptism. They could really do that? The answer should have been no. But they said we're able. When Jesus told them that they would do that, I I think, though, he was demonstrating they had a prideful attitude. I think the look on his face would have been like, you really don't know what you're asking. You really don't. I'm sure that's what it was like when Jesus talked to them. They didn't understand that that attitude would hinder them from servanthood, which is the whole point of what he's talking about. You have to be a servant. And this is not being a servant, trying to, to get the places of, of honor, aggressively going after them, and not even knowing what those places of honor required, just wanting them. You look at verses 39 and 40, and Jesus basically told them, yep, I guess you can suffer like I can, but that's not going to win you favor in my Father's kingdom. That is not my choice to make. I don't know who's going to sit on the right and the left of Jesus. Only the Father knows. Who has suffered more for the sake of Christ? I can't tell you. I know a lot of people who seem to be the ones who should sit there. But will it be the disciples? I don't know. Jesus didn't tell them. That's only for the Father to say. Think of all the people you've heard of over the years that have given their lives for the sake of Jesus. For the ones who were willing to suffer and give themselves. I think of those people who in Roman times walked willingly into the lion's mouth and proclaiming Jesus as they walked. Surely they should be for consideration. Or those martyrs who who tried to get the word of God in the people's hands when it was kept from them. And they smuggled and they gave and they gave their lives so that someone could read the word of God. Surely they should be considered in that group. I'm sure you can think of people who gave their life. But Jesus said it wouldn't be who they think. They believed they could endure a little hardship and Jesus would put them on either side in the, in the corner offices, like we would say, you know. I get the corner office with the window and, you know, the executive washroom. That's kind of what they were asking for. But that's not what they were going to get. If they suffered like Jesus... It really would have been for the wrong reasons. If that's what they were going for, if they were going for the corner office, if they were going for the seat of pride next to Jesus, so it could, you know, hey, I'm on the right of Jesus, then they would have suffered out of love for themselves rather than of Christ and his reward. What his reward is for us 
is different than what we want sometimes. John R. Stott says in his book, The Cross of Christ, that our world, and even the church, is full of Jameses, <laughs> that's hard to say, Jameses, and Johns. Go-getters, status seekers, hungry for honor and prestige, measuring life achievements and everlasting dreaming of success. David Garland, matter of fact, I had him as a seminary professor in Southwestern. He writes in the NIV application commentary as an author, puts this on this text. One need not look far to see preachers who do not preach to reach people, but preach to reach the top to become ecclesiastical superstars. They see discipleship to Jesus in terms of rank and privilege, he says. They assume that Jesus is someone who will achieve things for them and give them the status of lords. That's what James and John were looking for, to be on the right and left of Jesus. We can do better to understand the right attitude, can't we? I think we can. And the reason we can understand it is because Jesus taught the disciples in this exchange. And we can learn from their mistakes. A couple of things as we look at first and second, these are just how can we have the right attitude. First, I think to learn, if you really want to lead, you have to see what's happening to those around you who are self-interested leaders. Jesus is looking for servant leaders, not self-interested leaders. He's looking for leaders like him. So before we get to make the big decisions, how about stacking chairs? How about moving things around in the church? How about start there? One writer put it, if service is beneath you, leadership is beyond you. I like that. Look at that again. If service is beneath you, leadership is beyond you. Second. Seek to be led if you really want to serve. If you want to serve as a leader, first learn how to submit to authority. Learn what it means to be a follower and to follow before to be first. Serve those around you and even those above you. And then you'll be in a far better place to lead well because it'll be less about you and more about others. And that's servanthood. That's servant leadership. Teresa and I, grew up together you know we met at 15 and we met in church and and whatever they wanted us to do in church is what we did if it was to play a guitar and lead four and five year olds that's what we did whatever they asked of us to do if it was to paint the outside of the church that's what our youth group did that's where i met her by the way yeah they say that that open that window will still not open this day because we stood there so long painting it getting to know one another but we learned leadership through servanthood. And I appreciate the pastor at the time who put us to work to learn how to serve because it set us on a path that we needed to be leaders in the church. So the three points I'm going to look at. Point number one, the worldview of leadership is not Jesus' definition. You look at verse 42, and, and you see that again. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who regard as rulers and Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. That's the world's attitude. He says, That's not going to be the way you do it. They lord it over them. They exercise authority. They throw their weight around. It's a dictatorship, my way or the highway. 
I've been with people like that who are leaders. Unfortunately, I've worked for some of them. In Galatians 2, 11 through 12, we read these words. Paul says, Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face, because he was to be blamed for before certain men came before James or from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. As long as it's just Gentiles, I'm great. But if a Jew shows up, oh, I've got to be Jewish. James didn't understand servant leadership as it's seen in the event that happened years down the road from when Jesus spoke these, but he would learn. He would learn. The world today views powers and leadership differently. The NIV application commentary says, a warlike attitude continues to plague our world. It attracts many because it seems to win. I read an article a number of years ago about aggressive leadership. And how we don't like aggressive leadership, but for some reason we keep picking it because those people get results. Is that the only issue? Is results. Not in Jesus' terms. Servanthood is it. Remember when Israel tried to choose a king? We want a king because everybody else has a king. Instead of choosing God as their leader, I mean, come on. Instead of choosing God as their leader, they wanted a king they could look to who would rule over them. That's that same idea in the Old Testament, borne out today, as it says in the commentary, of a warlike attitude that developed sometimes in the church. They didn't know what servant leadership was. Number two, service is a measure of Christian leadership, verses forty. Three through 44. Christian pastors, deacons, and lay people need to be servants in order to become great. This is not a reference to greatness or power in the world. Servant leadership will never make you great in the world. It will in the kingdom of God, but it won't in the world. The greatness referred to here is a greatness in the Father's eyes. If you humble yourself as a servant, the Lord Jesus is pleased, and he will say one day, well done, my good and faithful servant. And isn't that more important than somebody down the street thinking your church is the best one in town? And yet we look for that. If you're a servant, there's going to be greatness in one for the kingdom's sake, not for the world's sake. If, so, if souls are added to the kingdom of God, we all need to be servants and help make that happen. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said that everyone can become great, because anyone can serve. He went on to say, you don't have to have a college degree to serve. You don't have to make your subject and verb agree to serve. You don't have to know Plato and Aristotle to serve. You don't have to know Einstein's theory of relativity to serve. You don't have to know the second theory of thermodynamics and physics to serve. You only need a heart full of grace, a soul generated by love to serve. I think it's still true, isn't it? Number three. Servant leadership is modeled after Jesus' behavior. You see that in verse 45, if you read along with me. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus used himself and his own acts as an example of what service could be. He's the only one that could do that, really. 
I mean, I, I would hopefully say, look to me to see how you're supposed to live. But ideally, I know I make mistakes and I'm faulted and I, and I, I, I fall back and I don't act as I always should. But I know Jesus did. And I can look to him. Take, for example, Jesus' foot washing in chapter 13. John 13, 3 through 5, we read Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things in his hands and he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper, laid aside his garment, took a towel, girded himself. After that, he poured the water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. He shouldn't have had to do that in their world. But in the kingdom he was building, that's exactly what he wanted from them. Servants, leadership. Jesus knew he had all the power in the universe in his hands, but he did not use that power to inflict control over his disciples. I have worked with people who have relished in the fact and would say, when I say jump, you just need to say how high. Would say things like, whose name signs the bottom of your check. That's power, that's exertion, that's control. Including today, how long have you worked here? That's exertion, that's control, that's power. That's not servant leadership. We hear those kinds of expressions and phrases in a church setting, in religious groups. It's not what Jesus wants. Instead, he got up and he washed the disciples' feet. Verse 15 in that chapter for I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. A servant. Jesus exemplifies servant leadership. We want to know how to live? We have to look at Jesus. What would Jesus do? That's a, a, you know, it became trite. It really did. What would Jesus do? Came an acronym. It just came, became letters. But really is a question we should ask. What would Jesus do in this situation? How would Jesus talk? How would Jesus act? He is the model that we should follow. I came across this. I, I can't say who wrote it, but it's six main points of servant leadership, and I thought it fit. Servants lead out of relationships, not by coercion. The big-time bossy-boss people, it's coercion do it because I said so because I'm over you in the you know the scheme of things in the hierarchy not by coercion lead servant leaders lead by support not by control they help people get their job done they don't expect them to do their job for them Servant leaders lead by developing others, not by doing all the ministry themselves. They disciple people and teach them how to do what they need to do. Servants guide people. They don't drive them. Servants lead from love, not domination. Servants seek growth, not position. They worry not about their position in a church, but... Is the church growing in the Lord? I like John Maxwell. I read a lot of his stuff. Uh, I, I, I think sometimes you need to be careful with anyone you read uh, and need to interpret it within the context of the Scripture. But he has some good points on leadership by the principles of Jesus. So he has uh, leadership by the principles of Jesus. 
Jesus was willing to invest in people others wouldn't have dismissed. Think about that for a minute. Consider the disciples. They were not religious elites. And and yet, Jesus used them to start the church and turn the world upside down. Unlearned, ignorant men. How would you like that on your resume? Well, I'm unlearned and I'm ignorant. But I've been with Jesus. That would be great. I'd like to put that on my resume. I've been with Jesus. Jesus released responsibility and ownership in the ministry. He let it go. Please don't start singing that song. (laughs) Jesus sent the disciples out on their own. He did not micromanage, I don't think. It doesn't show that in the scriptures. Here, guys, go out this way this time. Next time, do it different this time. And the times that we see Jesus sending the disciples out, he taught them different ways to do ministry. He equipped them, or unequipped them, if you see in some senses, to, in different ways to learn how to minister in different situations. But he didn't micromanage it. Jesus had leadership succession plan. He planned not to be there forever. And he planned far enough in advance to know he would not be there. He planned for it. Jesus consistently, I think, reminded the disciples he would not be with them. I will not always be with you. Of course, he was still the leader, but he, but he left others to take ministry forward. He knew that they would have to take up the cross and follow him. Jesus practiced servant leadership. He led by example. Scripture does not say that the Lord is my cowboy and drive me to heaven. And he's not with a whip that Jesus gets us to heaven. It's with his servant leadership. The king of kings was willing to wash the dirty feet of his followers and to be lashed and nailed to a tree as a servant of all. Jesus was laser focused on his vision. Regardless of the persecutions and distractions, Jesus kept on the mission that God had him to complete. I must go needs through Jerusalem. I have to go. But you can't know I'm going. He was laser focused. Jesus handled distractions with grace. When the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years touched him, the garment, the hem of his garment, Jesus stopped and stooped to heal her, even though he was heading toward Jerusalem. Even though there were distractions, he did it in a loving, kind way. Jesus was into self-care. And that means that Jesus constantly slipped away from time to time to take care of himself, to get away from the crowds, to get perspective on what was going on. It wasn't though he had to wash himself in the adulation of the crowds. It was something that distracted him. It was not something to strive for. Jesus was into leadership development and replacement. He very purposefully prepared the disciples to take over his ministry. He pushed people beyond what they felt they were capable of doing. He stretched them. That's a good leader, to know your people and to know how much they can take. Jesus held his followers, though, to high expectations. Jesus was not afraid to make huge requests of his people, follow me meant the disciples dropped their agenda, left everything. They left their nets, they left their lifestyles, they left their families, and they followed him. That's a high expectation. Follow me. 
Jesus cared more about people than about rules and regulations. God's focus is on people. God so loved the world. See, we needed a shepherd. And it wasn't about the rules and regulations. It was about what we needed. I think Jesus celebrated success in ministry. Jesus promises to reward those who generously are faithful to him. He promises us things, crowns in heaven. He he promises us a robe that is clean, brilliant white, to show that we have been forgiven and adopted. I think Jesus finishes well. I think any questions of whether his ministry was still effective? How about those two billion followers of Jesus on the planet? How about a third of the world that names the name of Christ? They not be our denomination, but they name Jesus as Savior. Jesus left his business to his followers over 2,000 years ago. And honestly, we can say it's still going strong. We're here because of it. You're here tonight because of it. You're willing to follow him because of what they did 2,000 years ago. I think we have to examine what it means to be a servant leader. The question I have for you is, will you strive to serve one another? That really is the question that Jesus is asking them, and he asks us 2,000 years later. Whether we're going to build up people through encouragement and guidance, whether we are going to equip people And enable them to minister or worry about us. If we serve those who are not Christians, then we can show them the love of Christ through deed. And allow them to see that Christians are a peculiar people. I love you in spite of what you do to me. Is what we should do. If you do not know Christ, and I would assume most of you do, but I never know and I don't know who's watching. The servant who died and performed the great, greatest act of all. You can know him today. You can be ministered to by him. He bled and died for you. He was punished for you so that your sins would be forgiven. If you accept Jesus as Lord and Savior, there now is no punishment, no condemnation because you've accepted him. But then you should become a servant yourself in that kingdom. You should follow him. It's been said that the local church is like a bank. The more you put in it, the greater your interest. I like that. The more you put in it, the greater your interest. In my pastoral ministry, I've received a lot of complaints from believers who are cynical and critical about the local church. Well, I know your people. I know, I know how they really are outside church. As a result, people tend to focus on what they want and the foibles of the church. I think people want to gripe and they want to whine. But we should still be busy about serving. Despite what they say out there. Even despite what we may say in here sometimes. We need to grow the love of the church for people and for ministries that are service-oriented. I challenge you today to look to his interests 
and his increases by what service you can perform. Will you pray with me? Dear God, we, along with the disciples, confess that we are outright selfish. <laughs> We're selfish people. We, we want what you can give us sometimes more than what you want from us. But we thank you that you're loving enough to give us more and, and to give us life itself because of what you did on the cross, because of the forgiveness that you offer us in salvation and the forgiveness of our sins. Please, God, win our hearts today. Make us like Christ. Let us hear these words as spoken through the disciples' mouths and Jesus' response that we might seek not to be served, but to serve and to give our lives for your kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.